The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 10. He planned to bring the nations to himself. You've got verses there, Matthew 10, 5, and 6, Matthew 15, 24, both talking about how Jesus came expressly for the house of Israel, for the people of Israel. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. But then you get to the end, Matthew 28, 18-20, we know that he said, go and make disciples of all nations. The whole picture was Jesus came to minister that lost sheep of Israel and raise up an army that would go to the nations. It is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. He planned to bring the, the nations to himself. All of that, all of that showing that God has a plan. And so when, when Jesus is ascended into heaven, he's still in control. There's still things that are working out here according to his plan. Not only does he have a plan, but he has the power to accomplish this plan. He has the power to accomplish it. Daniel chapter, well, his authority cannot be stopped. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, talks about the Son of Man who would have sovereign dominion and rule over every nation, tribe, people, and language. That's the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. When Jesus rises from the grave and he comes to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he starts by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, all dominion is mine. It's the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. But what's really interesting is that when you get to look at it with me, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, 55. This is the stoning of Stephen. The stoning of Stephen says, Stephen, full of the Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and he doesn't say Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. He says the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. It's a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Hardly anybody outside of Jesus referred to, himself, to him as the Son of Man. But Stephen does it this time to show that he has authority over everything in this situation. He is about to be stoned for his faith, but Jesus has authority over the whole picture. So he gets stoned, and what happens? The gospel advances. Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. And then you get to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and it says the whole church in Antioch was there as a result of the persecution associated with Stephen. The authority of Jesus cannot be stopped. He is going to show his authority over Satan. This is a great picture. You do realize in Acts chapter 7 and 8 that Satan's attempts to stop the church actually serve to advance the church. Does that give you confidence? And the mission God's entrusted to us, that any efforts of the adversary to stop us, God will turn around to advance us. He has authority, and it can't be stopped. Not only his authority, but his word cannot be stopped. All these verses that are listed there, I wish we had time just to, for the sake of seeing it repeated over and over again, but see how his word is emphasized. It's going forward. Nothing can stop his word. That's why when they prayed, when they were persecuted, and this is what we pray, I think Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4, is a great guide for us in how to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, verses 23 through 31. Basically what they prayed was, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's what they prayed for. Just let your word continue to go forward. Do whatever it takes. May your word go forward. His word cannot be stopped. The bottom line is nothing can or will keep his plan from being accomplished. When you get to the very end, Acts chapter 28, 
verse 30 and 31. You might turn there and make a little note because this is a great thing about the book of Acts. You get to the very end. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. There it is. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is, and you might underline it or circle it, but when it says without hindrance right there in Acts 28, 31, without hindrance he preached it, that, that word is actually at the very end of this verse in the original language of the New Testament. In the Greek, without hindrance is the last word. So the last word that Acts gives is the gospel going forward without hindrance. Nothing is going to stop this word. And that is a promise that we can and we must cling to today. In the New Testament, no unbelieving Jews persecuted the church, secular kings, nothing can stop it from going forward. And so there's nothing, absolutely nothing that is going to keep this mission from being accomplished. The only question is, will the church align with her king's plan? What's interesting it's their points in the book of Acts where you see the church resisting the plan of God. Acts chapter 11 is one example. When the Gentiles are starting to come to faith in Christ, they say, are they allowed to? Should we let them? Let's get, to have, get together and have a conference and see if that's an okay thing. It leads to Acts chapter 15. And here's where we've got to see. We've got to learn from history of the people of God. God's design throughout the Old Testament, we saw this when we studied Old Testament, his design for his people was to bless them greatly so that his glory would be made known through them in all nations. That was his whole plan. But they resisted it. Year after year, generation after generation, they resisted it and they missed it. So you get to the New Testament. The king comes to his people. And what do they do? They resist it. And the gospel, and the whole book of Acts is really a story of God active and God resisted over and over and over again. And you see him resisted in Jerusalem. Rejected by the Jewish people. That's kind of the statement of Acts chapter 6 and 7. And then even in the church you see the mission that God and his people resisted. And it's not intentional. It's not necessarily in your face, God. We don't want to do what you're saying. But it's preoccupation with everything except for the mission which we've been created for. Is there a word there for us? God, help us not to be, get so preoccupied, just as Israel did throughout the Old Testament, with our national pride and what we do and this or that, that we turn a deaf ear to the nations who desire he desires to see come to faith and repentance. That's why Luke said at the very end of his gospel, Jesus died so that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be preached in all nations. So we don't say today when Jesus died on the cross, he died just for me. We say when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die just for me. He died so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached among all the peoples of the earth. And I'm not going to resist that mission. I'm going to give myself to that mission. And in the church, we must give ourselves to that mission because if we don't, then we'll miss it and we'll reject him and we'll, we'll miss the whole point of why we're here. That's why the mission must be central in the kingdom and the church. Can't just put it to the side. Will the church align with her king's plan? I think the New Testament gives us hope of when it happens, what can happen. 
I pray that we'll learn from that. The king is in control. And second part of the mission of the kingdom is that the king has a new community. The king has a new community. What we see in the New Testament is Jesus is enlarging the kingdom through the church. Up until this point, people of God are the people of Israel. Had some outsiders, but mainly the people of Israel. You get to the church picture in Acts, and especially the letters that help inform the book of Acts, and it's a completely different picture. It's open to all people. The kingdom is available to all nations, all peoples. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all open to. I want you to see the picture that we see. First of all, this community, the church, is called by the mercy of Christ. Called by the mercy of Christ. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember, this is that book that was written in the middle of Nero's persecution when believers were being basically burned alive to light up his gardens. The suffering picture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to what he says to the church. He says, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and you are precious to him. You also, like stones, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is this a Jewish picture or what? But it's written to Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. Then he goes on, he quotes from the Old Testament, and it gets down to verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are here because God has called our names and he's initiated a relationship with us and he said to us, you are my people. Now declare my praises everywhere you go. You are my people. That's what he said throughout the Old Testament to the people of Israel. Now he's saying it to the church. It's loaded Old Testament imagery. He calls us by his mercy. Second, we're joined by faith in Christ. We're joined by faith in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 and 8, 26 to 29 are just a very clear picture of that. And then you get over to Hebrews chapter 11, and it's a great picture. I put especially 11.26 because it says Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as something worthy to pursue. Moses for the sake of Christ? Yes. We are united, even with believers of the Old Testament, by faith. Theirs was in the promise to come. Ours in the promise that we've seen come in Christ. Joined by faith in Christ. And third, filled with the Spirit of Christ. Filled with the Spirit of Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We won't have time to go there, but that is, man, that is a great picture of the unity of Jews and Gentiles. The whole book of Ephesians written to really hit on some of that Jewish-Gentile uh, relationship. He expresses the kingdom in the church. Okay? So he calls us out. He calls us by his mercy, enlarges the kingdom through the church. Then he expresses his kingdom through the, in the church. The church comprises the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, all those, all those verses from Ephesians talk about how we are the body of Christ. The body is mentioned over and over and over again. So we comprise the body of Christ. Second, the church possesses the authority of Christ. Remember back in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, when the disciples were given power to heal, authority to heal? We looked at that and how they were excited when they came back and demons had submitted in, their, in, in the name of Christ. When you get to Acts chapter 3, Peter 
goes up to the temple with John. There's a lame man sitting by the gate called Beautiful. And Peter says, rise and walk. And the guy does. He gets up and walks. And what we see from the very beginning of the church is that the authority of Christ now belongs to the church. He has given and trusted the authority that he had to the church most clearly in giving us his spirit. God, we can grow so casual with this, but don't miss the gravity of this statement. God has invested his spirit in you. He's given you his spirit. That is a mammoth truth. A mammoth responsibility. If we're not overwhelmed by that, and we've missed it, He's given us His Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, and all the authority that comes with that, given to us. We, we can't live a defeated Christian life with His Spirit in us. We're the body of Christ, we possess the authority of Christ. Uh, third, we, the church embodies the love of Christ, embodies the love of Christ. All over Ephesians, that book on the church, you see the love, distinguishing mark of the church is love. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We show our love to each other by laying down our lives for each other. You realize that the church is intended, we are intended to be a picture of the love of Christ in the world. And that when the world looks at us, if they do not see a community of love, then we are missing out on what it means to be a part of this kingdom. They need to see a community that loves, embodies his love for each other, and embodies his love and his care, his concern for the people in the world. Love must be the distinguishing mark of the church. We cannot compromise on love in the church. The church embodies the love of Christ. The church completes the sufferings of Christ. We mentioned Philippians chapter 1. We've talked about suffering, obviously, a good bit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 27 says exactly that. It says, I fill up, Paul says, what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? That his afflictions on the cross were not enough to save me from my sins? No. But, but don't miss it. Some of you, some of us are sitting here thinking, a little perplexed with the suffering, persecution, emphasis, how does, this, how does this work? Why is suffering, how can persecution even be a good thing? Well, think about it. How did God show his love to the world most clearly? He did it through a suffering servant, through the sacrifice of his son. That's how he showed us his love most clearly. So, assuming that his strategy has not changed, how is he going to show his love most clearly in the world today? How can we show, embody the character of Christ if everything always goes right for us? It's actually when things don't go right for us and when it's the hardest and when the suffering is deepest, and I, I don't want to say this in any way trivially because I know that there are people all across this room who are experiencing maybe not persecution but some pretty intense suffering in your life right now. And God, God desires to show his glory most clearly in those times. That's where the victory is most clearly in suffering. And so that's where it all comes together. We complete the sufferings of Christ. How are we going to show Christ to the world if everything always goes right for us? It's when things don't go right for us that we most clearly show Christ. The church completes the sufferings of Christ. Finally, the church displays the glory of Christ. 
Man, this is a great picture. Ephesians, I think you're, uh, you're there. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. He says, you're no longer foreigners or aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We saw that picture earlier with Jesus being the temple. Now the church us being filled with the Holy Spirit and our bodies being the temple and we rise together as a picture of the glory of the Lord. All those verses talk about the glory of Christ being most, most clearly displayed in the church. So he expresses the kingdom in us. We do realize in this room that we are the living representation of the kingdom of God on the earth today. Do you realize that? This is why we've got to study the New Testament because we've got to know about the kingdom of God and we've got to know how that looks in our lives because this is a huge responsibility and it's more important than anything else. That's why we need to do it because he expresses the kingdom through us in the church. Finally, he entrusts the kingdom to the church. He entrusts the kingdom to the church. He's given us this privilege. It means two main things. First of all, the church must guard the gospel. In our day, just as in every day, all the way since Colossians, there are philosophies, worldviews that would go against the gospel, would jeopardize the gospel, and that would even infiltrate the church and cause many in the church to begin to doubt if Jesus is the only way to heaven, if this word is really true, or if it's just some suggestions, who would begin to take the teachings of Jesus and twist them and it's alive and present today and we must stand guard with the gospel. We must guard against any false gospel that would try to infiltrate the church. The church must always guard the gospel. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us, it says in the New Testament. The church must not only guard it but must proclaim it. This is kind of the dichotomy. We guard it almost like we keep it hidden but no, we guard it. Don't miss it. We guard it through proclaiming it. So when we proclaim it, and we get it clearly out there over and over and over again. It's open to misinterpretation when the church is silent about the gospel. We guard the gospel by proclaiming the gospel. I love this. You've got to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me encourage you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's talking about this. Verse 4 through 6. Listen to this, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Skip down with me to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what you've got in verse 4 is the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers. In verse 6, you've got the true God who is shining light in the hearts. And in the middle, how does he do this? In the very middle, sandwiched in between, verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We preach Christ in the very middle of that. The God of this world is waging battle with the true God of the universe who is shining light in the hearts. And we're right in the middle, the thick of this battle. We are proclaiming the gospel. We must be active in proclaiming the gospel. One of the favorite things that Johnny, uh, that Johnny said, one of the favorite things that I heard Johnny say today, were, we, we don't have Billy Graham in China. We just, we just, we just share the gospel as individuals and, and in our lives and our families. That's how we, we share the gospel. He said, you can't have Billy Graham in China. Well, God help us to see that maybe, maybe sharing the gospel as individuals would, would be a better plan 
ultimately for advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. We must proclaim the gospel. The question I want to challenge you with is, are you advancing the kingdom? That's the question. Are you advancing the kingdom? I want you to think with me about the New Testament church and mission. First of all, the church was born in the context of mission. You realize, obviously, these writings about Christ did not happen necessarily while he was on the earth. All of them have to have written, been written after he ascended into heaven in order to include that picture. And so every book that's written in the New Testament came after the life of Christ, the beginning of the church. The church was born in the context of mission from the very beginning in the book of Acts. All of this is aimed toward the mission of the church. That means every single one of these documents is a missionary document. It's born in the context of mission. The whole point is to show how the church was shaping itself for mission and advancing the kingdom. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.